Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Friends, listen now with open ears to God's word from Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John at the Jordan. And just as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things that I did this past year was read a few different pieces of autobiography and memoir over the course of the year. I read, actually listened on on Audible, which is the way to do it because he reads the book himself. I read the memoir Surrender, which was written by Bono to tell the story of his life. He's, of course, the lead singer of the Irish rock band U2. And in in his famous Irish drawl, he tells the story of his early years of life growing up as a kid in Dublin, meeting the the, the boyhood friends who would eventually become the other members of his band, meeting his wife, going on to become an activist. I read a, I read a, a powerful account of, of uh, suffering and an escape from slavery by the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass called My Life as a Slave. I read a, a, a a wonderful little book by a writer named Eudora Welty called One Writer's Beginnings, where she talks about her early years and how her childhood shaped her sensibilities as a writer. And as I was thinking about beginning this journey through the book of Mark, I was struck by how different the book of Mark is from all these other biographies and autobiographies that, that I've read and that, you, and that maybe you've encountered. Mark is, is different from any biography you've ever read, every, any documentary you've ever watched about some historical person or, or celebrity or, or such. Uh, for example, there, there is nothing that Mark tells us, zilch, about uh, Jesus' birth or childhood years. Uh, Mark doesn't bother telling us anything about Jesus' family. Doesn't bother to tell us anything about Jesus' education. He tells us very little about Jesus' interior life, what he thinks or feels at any given time. The book of Mark isn't isn't a tell-all about Jesus. As Mark himself says, and as Jesus says in the beginning of his public life, Mark is a gospel. In other words, the, the story of Jesus in Mark is an announcement for us that the invisible creator of the universe is here 
and for us in Jesus. Mark tells us the story of Jesus and what Jesus does to unfold for us what God is doing in the universe to heal and rescue it through this mysterious solitary figure from Nazareth in Galilee. Mark tells us the story of Jesus to help us understand how our lives can participate in Jesus' story and in what God is doing in the world through him. And so I simply, as we begin the year, I want to invite you to encounter the story of Jesus together with me over the next few months, wherever you are in your own journey. You know, if you're somebody for whom you're, you're not a Christian or it's been a long time since faith was any real part of your life, you know, regardless of whatever you think or don't think about him, Jesus of Nazareth is at least the most important human being who has ever walked the planet. And the book of Mark is the very first account that we have of the most important person in the history of the world. There's a literature professor from Duke University named Reynolds Price. who He actually makes this point in an essay that he wrote about, about the book of Mark. He says, Mark has proved the most influential of human books. All other books from 4,000 years of epics, plays, lyrics, and biographies have touched human life less potently. This is the singular account of the most important person in the world. And even if you're somebody for whom you've been a Christian for, for decades and decades, I hope this is a journey that you'll enter into as well. There's a, there's a Presbyterian pastor and author who died several years ago named Eugene Peterson, who, who wrote a, a compelling piece on the book of Mark in which he says that, that the gospel of Mark is the basic text for Christian spirituality. Most scholars agree that, that Mark was the first of the four accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible to be, to be written. Nobody had written a gospel before Mark wrote his gospel. And so if you are somebody for whom you shape your life around the story of Jesus, this version of Jesus' story, this account of Jesus' story, this is the bedrock that you build your life on. So I want to simply invite you for a few moments this morning as we begin immersing ourselves in this book to simply look with me at these first two glimpses that we have of Jesus as he goes into the water and as he goes into the wilderness. Now, as Mark introduces us to Jesus, he tells us, of a day that Jesus has traveled to join his cousin John by the muddy banks of the Jordan River. John is, is leading something of a renewal movement in Israel in the first century, inviting people to, uh, to pay attention to God. And Jesus joins cousin John on the banks of the Jordan, and he's baptized by John. And then Mark tells us that just as Jesus comes up from the water, Mark says the heavens are torn open. And the language this part of the Bible is written in, Mark doesn't just say that, that the heavens were open. He uses a, a violent word. 
He says they were ripped apart or torn asunder from each other. And the point that Mark wants us to see is that that in the arrival of Jesus in the world, God has once and for all ripped open the barrier between us and him forever. God, as one scholar puts it, ripped a gracious gash in the universe and forever opened a way for us to know God and God to know us. And then there's this moment as Jesus emerges from the water in which he hears the warm voice of God from the heavens. You're my son and my beloved, and I'm pleased with you. As he hears these words, there's the figure of a dove, the symbol of, of God's spirit that comes to rest on him. Now these, these, two, these two elements, the words that Jesus hears and the dove that Jesus sees, these are echoes of earlier moments in the drama of the scriptures that, that maybe you recognize if you're somebody who's familiar with the scriptures. In the very beginning of the, the story of God in the book of Genesis, the very opening lines of Genesis depict God shaping a universe out of dark, soupy nothingness. And we're told that in the beginning, God's spirit moves, or some translations actually put it flutters, which is the word for for what a bird or a dove does. Mark wants us to see that just as, as God created a good world in the beginning here through Jesus, God is gonna mend and heal his creation. There's a second century church leader named Hippolytus that makes this point in a, a sermon he did about this text. He says, so it happened here, not only that the Lord was being baptized, he was also making new the old creation. There's also echoes of, of promises from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah that we see come together as Jesus stands in the water. Isaiah pictured a day when God would would work through uh, this mysterious figure that Isaiah called the servant of God. Isaiah introduces this figure in Isaiah 42. As God says, here's my, my servant in whom my soul delights. God's servant would be uh, this, this person that God would work through to set the world right once and for all. There's these dark hints, if you read the book of Isaiah, that God's servant would, would suffer on behalf of of the darkness and evil of the world to overcome it. And so as as Jesus hears a voice from the heavens saying, you're my beloved son, Mark wants us to see that that through Jesus, God is, is finally, once and for all, going to make us new and going to make us free. Now, after... After this dramatic moment, we're told that God's spirit leads or or drives Jesus into the wilderness. And we mostly, in in our own culture, we think about the wilderness as as mostly a place of of recreation or sport. uh, We think about hiking or fishing in the wilderness. My, My kids love to watch those shows which somebody will get dropped in somewhere in Alaska or northern Canada to see how long they can subsist on their own in the wilderness. 
But that wasn't how the ancients thought about the wilderness. In the ancient world, the wilderness was a, a place of isolation and lostness and death. That's where Jesus, affirmed by the voice of his father, immediately goes. Jesus is going there, a faithful son to the father, to once and for all overcome and undo our unfaithfulness. Again, if you're familiar with the scriptures, think about the echoes that you hear of earlier moments in the biblical story. The early human beings, they turn their backs on God and as, as they leave paradise into a world broken and east of Eden, they enter the wilderness. In the Exodus story, God frees a group of enslaved nobodies, makes them his own people. But then they refuse to trust him and listen to him and subsequently wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Here, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, faithfully enduring temptation and the tempter to undo all of our fickle unfaithfulness. Now, these two images that we have at the very beginning of the story of Jesus, Jesus in the water and Jesus in the wilderness. They, they're a signpost for us that show us what Jesus' ultimate vocation really is. Elsewhere in the book of Mark, Jesus would talk about his death as a baptism. In other words, Jesus' vocation would be to be immersed in all the death and evil of the world. And, and through doing that, through that death on a cross, in which it will be swamped with the darkness and pain of a broken world, God would, would once and for all make us free and make us and his world new. The cross of Jesus, what seemed like the ultimate in a shameful defeat, would be the way that Jesus would win the ultimate victory over the dark powers of evil that here he first faces up to in the wilderness. There's a compelling piece of art that, that pictures this that I love in the city of Cologne in Germany. There's a cathedral at the center of the city of Cologne, and if you've ever visited it, it has at its entrance two immense wooden doors that have carvings that feature scenes from the life of Jesus. And one of them is this one of his baptism. And if you, if you look closely at the carving here, you see on the, on the right-hand side of it, Jesus coming up from the water, somebody's holding a tunic there for him. You see the bird, you see the, the dove descending on him. But then, if you look at the bottom, you see Jesus stepping on something. And that something is the broken and defeated body of a demon. Uh, the artist wanted us to see that it's at this moment that Jesus begins his full and final defeat of the evil that oppresses us in the world. The moment that he steps into that water is the moment that he begins what seems like the ultimate defeat, but will come to be the ultimate victory. And so I want to simply, for just a, a moment as we conclude this morning, I want to invite you to reflect on, on what, what those two images of Jesus that we first glimpse in the book of Mark, what they mean for, our, for your life if you're a follower of Jesus, if, if you are marked by his grace. And so I want to, I want to invite you to reflect first on the, the image of what it means that 
You follow the one who went into the water for you. If you're somebody for whom you have been marked by Jesus' grace in baptism yourself, if you've embraced Jesus in faith, then what God says to Jesus at the waters of his baptism is the same thing that God says to you as he looks at you. If if you're a Christian, the story of Jesus is your story. His dying and rising, it's, it's for you. You're included in his story. And so the living God of the universe, as God looks at your life, even the parts of it of which you are most ashamed, God looks at you, and if you are marked by Jesus' grace, God says to you, you are my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. I'm pleased with you, I'm happy with you, I'm proud of you. That is what is most true about your life if you are a Christian. You know, think about how deeply we ache for that affirmation. You know, that, that is the great desire that drives an awful lot of our lives. You think about why it is that, that you're so driven to, to make partner. Think about why it is that you're, that you're so driven to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. To have a, a little bit more than the person that lives next door. I think about why it is that, that you throw yourself from, from an unhealthy relationship to an unhealthy relationship. All of us, we, we have this this internal desire for somebody to say of our lives, you're beloved and I approve of you, proud of you. Over the Christmas holiday, I, I watched the Christopher Nolan film Oppenheimer, his, his historical depiction of the life of Robert Oppenheimer. If you've not seen the film, uh, Robert Oppenheimer was a, a quantum physicist who developed the technology that the U.S. eventually used to create the atom bomb. He was a fascinating, paradoxical person. He, he, was, a, he was a genius. He helped develop this technology. And then after seeing it used, he, he went on to, to actually oppose the proliferation of nuclear arms. And in the beginning of the film, if you've, if you've seen it, uh, it's, it's framed by this congressional hearing that he's called into in which some of his political opponents have jerry-rigged this hearing that he's going to have to go through. And he arrives at it to tell much of the story of his life. And, and as he walks in with an armful of papers, one of the characters says to another as they see him walk by, uh, they say to each other, man, who would ever want to have to justify their whole life? Now the answer of the film is, is this man does. He's desperate to justify the things that he's done in his life. But also, really all of us. All of us have this internal ache to, to justify the life that we have lived in some way. Friends, this is what is completely unique about the Christian story. The good news of Jesus is that at the end of the day, what matters in the final analysis, is not what you have done or not done to justify your life. 
It is the love of God in Jesus that justifies your life. What's most true about you, what matters the most about your life is not what you've done or not done, it's what Jesus has done. If you're a Christian, the story of Jesus, this is your story. This is why as we begin worship together, one of our church leaders, as we, as we begin to worship, will pour water into the baptismal font. We do that because week by week, you and I live by all kinds of other stories. And we bring all that with us as we come here to worship. We live with all, with all kinds of other words about what your life is or isn't, whether your life is a success or a failure, who you really are or who you're not. We, we pour this water as we begin worship to remind one another that what's most true about you is that God looks at you and says, you are my beloved son. You're my daughter. I'm proud of you, pleased with you. Second, think with me about this image of Jesus going into the wilderness for us. Now, friends, you can count on this. Everybody who follows Jesus will follow him into the wilderness. If you're a Christian, you have either been in a wilderness, you are in one right now, or you're on the clock and you will be at some point. You can count on that. Jesus goes into the wilderness for us and bears up under 40 days of temptation so that you and I can know that in the inevitable wildernesses of our stories, even when we are in a wilderness, we will never be in one alone. There will always be Jesus, the faithful son, there will always be God's spirit and there will always be the unconditional love of our father who says to us, you're my beloved. I'm proud of you. You know, I'm, I'm aware just knowing many of, many of your stories that for a lot of people, this, uh, this great desire for, for justification, for approval of our lives in some way it's, it's carved out in us because you grow up in a situation in which your earthly parents oftentimes with, withhold those kind of words of affirmation. I know that that's the case for a lot of people. I, I luckily grew up in a family in which I, I didn't have to endure that. I, I, from the time that I was a little kid, remember the, the rhythm of our family every evening. One of, our, one of my parents would come, pray for me, and then look me in the eye and say, Jared, I love you and I'm proud of you. And then, Flick the light out. I loved that as a kid. I loved it less so as a teenager. I can still remember the experience of getting out of our family's car, and as I was trying to scurry with my friends into the uh, into the into the middle school building in our town before anything too embarrassing was happening, hearing my my dad's bellowing voice said, "Jared, just remember, have a great day. I love you. I'm proud of you." That would, always, that would always make me, you know, that would always make me a little squeamish. I was a wrestler in school growing up, and I still remember the experience of running out for a match as a high school student to face my opponent, and above the crowd, hearing my dad's voice say, 
I love you, son. I'm proud of you. So there was one day where I took my dad aside and I said, Dad, listen, I get it, okay? I'm glad that you and mom love me. I'm glad you tell me that. Can you not tell me that in public places? Like this, it's a little awkward. Why do you do that? Well, this is what he said to me. He said, do you know the first time that my dad ever told me that he loved me? He said, I was 31 years old. He said, so when your, your mom and I found out that we were going to have you and talked about what we wanted our family's life to be like, one of the things that we talked about was that we didn't want a day to go by with any of our children where they didn't know every single day that they were loved and that we were glad for them. Our friends, that's a, that's a picture of the great grace that Jesus gives us. That for all of us, desperate to justify our lives, because of Jesus, God, in his sheer love, looks at the whole of you and says to you, you are my beloved, my son, my daughter. I'm pleased with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.